Good morning. And welcome to the second part, a month removed, of our ninth annual Question and Answer Sunday. Um, several weeks ago, we distributed to you about 15 questions and asked you to uh, give us what you thought were the top three or four questions that you would like for us to deal with uh, during this short two-part series. And so uh, back on August the 2nd, we dealt with the first two questions, and that's uh, what's the deal with the end times, and how do I know if I'm good enough to get into heaven? And this morning, we're going to wrap up by dealing with the uh, final two questions, uh, the first of which is, can evolution and Christianity coexist? And then, is everything black and white in the Bible, or are there gray areas? And so... uh, as we uh, launch into this first question, can evolution and Christianity coexist? Uh, watch the screen here. Hello, I'm creation. I'm the theory of evolution. No, why is that? Why is that? The theory. Well, because I sort of kind of had an improvement of all games. Well, what do you mean, yeah? Well, there's a lot of scientists still trying to prove anything about me. Oh, how's that come? Not so good. Not so good. What about you? What, proof? Well, yeah, why aren't, why aren't you a theory? Well, because every design has a design. Oh, but what if that design is random? <laughs> That's not possible. It has to be. Why? Hey, look, it's the missing link. What? <laughs> now that thing. So can evolution and Christianity coexist? Uh, Before I um, just make a few observations this morning, I just want to set it up. We need to to understand, we need to sort of remember that the breakdown between religion and science is something that is fairly uh, new. It's relatively recent. As late as the late 18th century, uh, there was remarkable synergy between religion and science. However, about the 1850s or so, that decade especially, um, it seems like scientists in that day, uh, in really a knee-jerk response to what they perceived as their authority being threatened by religious scholars, took it upon themselves to become the self-declared great liberators of humanity to try and help the common folk uh, not be taken in by these outdated, old-fashioned religious concepts that had been predominant uh, for centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh, And in fact, much of our current humanistic perspective that is found on university campuses, in schools around the world, in government, etc., stems from this actual time period, about the 1850s. And ever since that time, this growing conflict has had much less to do with the differences between the principle and knowledge of science and faith, and much more to do with the social and personal concerns of scientists and theologians. And the deal is, science has in no way won out over faith because the battle from the beginning was never between science and faith, but between scientists and theologians. Dr. Alistair McGrath says the idea that science and religion can't, are, are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. And we're seeing uh, a, just a radical transformation in the scientific community today of scientists who are moving away from that which has been true uh, in the scientific community uh, for the last 150 years uh, towards um, other concepts allowing for intelligent design, 
possibly a creator, etc. So um, I need your help uh, because if, if, uh, if you don't help me here, uh, we're going to spend the whole time on this and I really want to get to the other one. So whoever has a, a watch with an alarm clock thing on it or whatever, will you set that for 10 minutes? I'm going to talk for 10 minutes about this and then we're done, okay? So who's going to do that? Who's going to call me on 10 minutes? You. 10 minutes up, you let me know, okay? And I'm deaf in this ear, so you're at a disadvantage. Yell loud, okay? <laughs> All right. Um, the deal is the number of scientists in the world who have stuck their head in the sand, who refuse to acknowledge the thoughtful contributions of persons of faith, are no fewer in number or any less biased or any less ignorant than the number of theologians who have stuck their heads in the sand, who refuse to acknowledge the thoughtful contributions of persons of science. How should you and I deal with this whole controversy? How should a follower of Jesus approach the science-faith controversy? And what does it have to do with us, really, at a practical level? Um, first of all, we need to acknowledge that this is a complex, incredibly complicated issue. This is not something that me or anyone else is going to be able to solve in 10 minutes or 10 days or 10 years. This is why it is a controversy. If it was as easy as some attempt to make it be, whether from the faith perspective or the scientific perspective, it would have been put to rest a long time ago. But the reality is we do ourselves and we do others a huge disservice when we attempt to answer or solve questions of science or faith in some cursory, um, superficial way. So what I want to do in, what, nine minutes now is simply to, I hope it's nine minutes, simply to make some observations about this. Observation number one. Both science and religion, or faith, if you will, rely far more on unproved, unverified hypotheses and faith than either scientists or theologians care to admit. And this is the big fallacy that we're not taught in our universities. We're taught that the theory of evolution is no longer a theory, it's fact. And we're taught that matters of faith are just that. They're matters of faith. The reality is, Evolution, nor creation, from a Christian perspective, can be indisputably proven and verified and or replicated. And so both of these disciplines require huge, huge leaps of faith in order to believe. Um, as such, I think there is a, a need for just honesty and discernment in the whole origin debate from both faith communities as well as the scientific community. It is completely accurate. And again, we're obviously here coming from a faith perspective. And from a faith perspective, it is completely accurate and reasonable to say that a belief in God is coherent with what we observe in the world. This is not stupid. This is not anti-intellectual. This is not head in the sand to believe that there is an intelligent creator who thought all this up and who made all of this, regardless of the process or processes he decided to employ. The order and, and symbiotic nature of the universe can be explained by the existence of God as creator. And for someone to suggest that a follower of Jesus 
is somehow anti-intellectual because he or she holds to a belief in God and intelligent design is not only unfair and ignorant, it is foolish and hypocritical. Because those who hold to evolution, macroevolution, as fact, are doing so on the basis of faith, not verifiable, indisputable evidence. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing is this. There is evidence of God's existence. There are clues. And while our beliefs are not provable, they are nonetheless perfectly reasonable. And even more so than the belief that all things simply materialized by chance. The evidence for God's existence is in no way inconsistent with what we see in the world. And a lot of times the scientific community want us to believe that the evidence for God or belief in God or faith in God is somehow at odds with what we see around us. And nothing could be further from the truth. It is perfectly reasonable based on what we can observe, based on what we do know, to believe in a God who created And most of the clues that point to God's existence are not just convincing, they're compelling. In other words, for something to be compelling, you have to work hard not to believe it. You have to work hard not to accept it. You have to work hard not to be drawn in that direction. And the evidence for God in the world and the evidence for an intelligent, personal creator is just compelling. You can't prove it 100%. You can't can't prove it by evidence that that can be replicated. But just from what you see, what you observe, there is a very reasonable belief to believe in God. Arguing for God as creator, this is the third thing, arguing for God as a creator um, does not necessarily constitute an attack on microevolution. People on both sides of the fences concede that a form of evolution is taking place all the time. Variations within species of plants and animals, that's real. This is why we have different kinds of dogs. This is why we have big dogs and little dogs, good dogs and bad dogs, manly dogs and my daughter's dog. This is why we have different kinds of dogs. This is why we have uh, seedless grapes. This is why we have uh, hybrid corn. This is why we have uh, some bacteria that develop an immunity to antibiotics. Because there is variation within a species. And this is known as microevolution. But Darwin's theory of evolution, the theory of evolution that is taught on university campuses, the theory of evolution that's taught to your kids in public school, the theory of evolution as our culture understands it, goes well beyond microevolution to macroevolution. The evolutionary theory taught in schools today claims that without guidance of any intelligent designer, life began millions, perhaps billions of years ago from some kind of primordial ooze. And out of that ooze, a single-cell creature evolved. And out of that single-cell creature that evolved, multiple and complex creatures began to evolve such that you and I are here today. And so you think about yourself. You think about how complicated a person you are. And what evolutionary theory at the macro level teaches us is that you evolved out of some goo with no intelligent thought or design behind that creation. 
And that's where Christianity and evolution break down as theories that can be held in tension and followed simultaneously. The reality is there's lots of microevolution, lots of evidence of microevolution, but it's always within species. It's the way God designed it, it appears from what we can observe. But we make a huge jump when we try and reconcile macroevolution with Christianity. The two are irreconcilable. And so a couple of things to think about. Uh, what you believe about evolution reveals much more what you believe about God than it does science. Because both are theories, both are hypotheses. Both take incredible amounts of faith to believe and trust and base your life on. And so what you say you believe about evolution reveals more what you think about God than it does about what you think about science. Because the reality is most of us are not scientists. I dare say none of us are scientists. I dare say none of us have, 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 have discovered firsthand or have firsthand knowledge of interacting with the evidence for evolution. We simply read a book or we have a professor that tells us something and suddenly we decide to buy it as gospel. And the reality is, most of us, me at the front of the line, we're just not that smart and we don't have that experience. And so we're simply taking something someone wrote or someone said and we're regurgitating it as fact. That says more about what we believe or don't believe about our God than it does what we believe or don't believe about our science. Second thing we need to think about in terms of this is that if you want to believe in evolution, even at the macro level, you will find as much proof as you need to support your belief. And if you want to believe in an, in, 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 an intelligent designer, creator, in the form of a personal God, you will find as much evidence to support that as you need to believe that. The reality is both take incredible amounts of faith. I'm not saying there's no evidence for either one. I'm simply saying that both require faith to go from what evidence there is, from what evidence is verifiable, improvable, and, and able to be replicated. There's a huge gap between that and the actual theory being fact. And so I just throw out for your consideration. Oh, <laughs> sorry someone's waving at me over here. I'm, thank you. Is it, is, are we up? Good. Question two. <laughs> is everything black and white in the Bible, or are there great... Now, I don't want you to call me on 10 minutes on this one, okay? This is one I get to go as long as I want to go on, okay? <laughs> is everything in the Bible black and white, or are there gray areas in the Bible? I think, personally, this is the best question out of the 15 questions that we uh, got to choose from. Um, and with the sole exception of the question that we dealt with a month ago, how good do you have to be to get to heaven? With the sole exception of that question, I believe that this question has more potential to change us than any other question. What you believe about evolution, in the big scheme of things, it's not going to affect your Monday. What you believe the Bible says is black and white, and what you believe the Bible says is gray, and how you live that out has huge implication for life change and huge implication for taking us down desired paths and down undesirable paths. Now, let me just give a disclaimer here. We're going to talk about black and white and gray, and you need to understand, as best as 
we can, we're going to talk about this from the perspective of what God says in the Word. This is not what Mike says. This is not what you say. This is not what some book or some denomination or some church says. This is what the Bible says. This is what God has said in the Scripture is right or wrong or is gray and we have some liberty with it. Okay? So, not meant to be judgmental. If I say something that is something you disagree with, fine. You know, I mean this in all love. Take it up with God here, but take it up with God here. Don't take it up with me unless you want to discuss it. Take it up with the Lord. Because God is amazingly accurate. He is amazingly clear in the Scripture about how you and I as followers of Jesus should live our lives. And so uh, with that sort of as a, a backdrop, understand, I don't have all this figured out. Um, I do things every day that I shouldn't do. And I fail to do things every day that I should do, just like you. Okay? But as we learn to abide in Christ, as you and I, with fear and trembling, figure out what it looks like to walk with Jesus, as you and I involve ourselves in this process of growing, growing to maturity, in the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus. When we, when, we, when we are involved in that process consistently, when we're moving forward, along obedience in the same direction, when that's happening, we need to understand that we will not only have to grapple with the gray areas, we will have to grapple with the black and white areas. And sometimes those are more difficult for us than the gray areas. I love what Mark Twain said. He said, it's not those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. So I just want to talk about the gray areas and the black and white areas um, under, the, under the heading of two principles. And here's the first principle. Write this down if you have a pen because this will serve you well. Principle number one, you and I, both of us, all people, grossly underestimate the black and white in the Bible because we grossly underestimate our own propensity toward foolishness and sin. You and I grossly underestimate what God has been very clear and black and white about in the Bible because we grossly underestimate our propensity toward foolishness and sin, the darkness of our heart, the deceitfulness of our own hearts. You realize, we love, God's pro we love it when God promises something in the Bible, don't we? I love a promise. You love a promise because God is faithful. God carries through with his promises. So we love promises. You realize there are 1,260 promises from God in the Bible. Now, all of those don't apply to us. Some of those are, are meant for the nation of Israel. Some of those are meant for, for, for other uh, groups of people. But a lot of them do apply to us, and we love that. But do you realize there are six 1,468 commands of God in the Bible. I counted, okay? 6,468 commands in the Bible. Things about which God has said, this is black, this is white. This is right, this is wrong. This is good, this is bad. Not gray, but black and white. And we love, I love, 
to claim God's promises in my unique situation. I love to take one of those 1,260 promises and say, that's for me. God's talking to me. He's going to work on my behalf. He's going to do this. He's going to make sure I have this. He's going to make me feel this way. I love to claim those promises on my behalf in my unique situation, but I love to assume that God's 6,468 commands, most of those are meant for you, not me. That's the way we are. And if you think you're not that way, you just broke a command because you're proud and not humble. (laughs) We are that way. That is the deception of our own heart. God and what he says in the Bible is black and white in so many areas. I was sitting in Barnes & Noble uh, yesterday. And I just off the top of my head just started writing down commands in Scripture that are relevant to you and me as followers of Jesus. Pray. That's a command. It's not something we can do or not do. Be baptized. Command. Love. Command. Engage in the local church. Command. Don't use profanity. Command. Speak the truth in love. Command. Live wisely. Don't lust. Don't commit adultery. Talk with others about Jesus. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't lie. Don't exaggerate. Don't exasperate your kids. Obey your parents. Work in such a way that you support yourself and your family. Don't get drunk. Don't gossip. Don't be presumptuous. Love God. Love people. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Be gracious. Be kind. Be forgiving. Give a portion of that which you make financially back to God. Don't be involved with people who aren't followers of Jesus in a business relationship, in a personal relationship as it involves romance. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Trust God. Abide in Christ. Long for Jesus to return. Be in the world, but not of the world. Those are just off the top of my head. That's what maybe... 15 or 20? There's 6,468 of these things. See, see, I always knew God was a killjoy. No, God, God knows what's best for you and me. That's the deal. God doesn't give commands because he's got some Napoleon complex. God gives commands because he knows how we should live the life that he created. Go back to the first question we dealt with. Us to live. That's the deal. The black and white areas and issues in the Bible, the commands, are seemingly endless. But if we're not real careful, we will act and we will behave and we will live as though God's commands were not commands. They're just sort of suggestions. They're just really good ideas. That's a good one, God. But we don't live like they're commands. Like our life and our relationship with Him depend on it. And when we do that, we do so at our peril. We cannot make gray that which God has said is black and white. We cannot make a suggestion that which God has expressly commanded or expressly forbidden. This is why it is so crucial that you and I, who claim to love Jesus and want to follow him, this is why it is so crucial that you and I know what is in this book 
and interpret it accurately and live it out faithfully. Because God has said, this is what I want you to do and not do. This is who I want you to be and not be. This is how I want you to live and not live. And we don't come into a relationship with God on the basis of doing something right or not doing something wrong. Don't misunderstand me. This is not some legalistic trip that God is on. This is a heavenly Father who knows you and me better than we know ourselves, who has said to us in the Word, it will go best with you if you live according to my design. And so we grossly underestimate the black and white in the Bible because we so grossly underestimate our propensity toward foolishness and sin. Now, here's the second principle. We grossly overestimate the gray areas in the Bible because we grossly overestimate our propensity to do wise and right things. We grossly overestimate the gray areas in the Bible because we grossly overestimate our propensity to do the wise and right things. You know, one of the surest characteristics of maturity in Christ is not perfection. Rather, it's the ability to discern not just right from wrong, but that which is wise from God's perspective and that which is unwise. One of the ways you know that you are growing up in Christ is when, when you're able to look at that which is permissible and that which is beneficial and choose that which is beneficial over that which is permissible. One of the ways you know you are making progress in this long obedience in the same direction is when you can look at an issue that is gray And though we have freedom in Christ that covers a lot, say it will be wisest and best and healthiest for me if I choose this over this. That's a mark of maturity. Maturity is not just getting the rights or getting the blacks and whites right and wrong. It's being able to navigate the grays in wise, healthy ways. Sometimes Unfortunately, we tend to think of things, especially the gray areas, uh, just in terms of sin management. We like to see just how close we can get to sin without actually sinning. We like to see how close we can get to that black area without actually getting into the black area. And so we, we get real close to the black area. Maybe we put one foot in the black area, but I got one foot in the white area. And we think it's okay to straddle that. We think it's okay to be lukewarm. We forget Jesus says, I'll vomit you out of my mouth if you're lukewarm. We forget that. Because we like to think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I got a pretty good head on my shoulders. I think I know what's best for me. I think that I can dabble. I think I can get real close to this line without stepping over. And guess what? The moment that becomes our motive, the moment that becomes our mindset, the moment our intention is to manage our sin, the moment that becomes our trajectory and direction, we've already sinned. Our heart has already become rebellious. The moment we see how close we can get to the line without stepping over the line, we're already in sin, I think. Our heart has already become rebellious towards our Heavenly Father. We've already taken a step away from our Father. 
We've already taken our eyes off of Christ and put it on the desires of the flesh, whatever that may be. And we just have to be so careful. Because it's the gray areas of life, more than the black and white areas, that tend to wreck our lives as followers of Jesus. It's one thing for someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God living in them, who is a slave to the powers of darkness, whose heart is totally depraved. It's one thing for them to make a bad choice or to do the wrong thing. The Bible says that's what you should expect. But for those of us that have the Spirit of God permanently living in us, who are supposed to be engaged in an ever-developing, ever-growing, ever-mushrooming, ever-fuller relationship with Jesus who died for us. A lot of times we don't struggle with the black and white as much as with the gray, but we make the gray more about black and white than gray. By seeing how close we can get to the line. Listen to what Oswald Chambers writes. He says, it is not being reconciled to the fact of sin that produces all the disasters in life. We talk about noble human nature and self-sacrifice and platonic friendship, all unmitigated nonsense. Unless we recognize the act of sin, there is something that will laugh and spit in the face of every ideal we have unless we reconcile ourselves to the fact that there will come a time when the power of darkness will have its own way, we will compromise with that power when that hour comes. If we refuse to take the fact of sin into our calculation, refuse to agree that a base impulse runs through people, that there is such a thing as vice and self-seeking, then when our hour of darkness strikes, instead of being acquainted with sin and the grief of it, we will compromise straight away and say there is no use battling against it. That's a description of you and I when we nonchalantly pursue gray areas under the guise of I'm free in Jesus, I can do what I want, everything's permissible, even though everything's not beneficial. Oh, we tread a thin line and are on thin ice if we think that the gray areas are innocent areas that won't trip us up. As long as we stay away from the black and white, or actually the black, if we think we're okay, Paul says that's the kind of pride that goes right before you fall. We say this often around here. What's the wise thing to do in every situation, in every circumstance, in every decision. That's the deal. That's the question we should be asking ourselves. Sometimes we get the black and white right and wrong question wrong. I, I understand that. But all you got to do is read this if you want to know what God says is black and God says is white. But when it comes to the gray areas, we cannot trust our hearts. We cannot trust our intuition we cannot trust our thinking because so often the gray areas involve that which is counterintuitive to you and i 
And so we have to ask ourselves a question. In light of my past experience, in other words, in light of the way I have responded and reacted in my past, in light of the things I've done in my past, in light of the areas that have tripped me up in my past, in light of how I have worked out or failed to work out my salvation in the past, in light of the things I've, I've just royally blown in the past, in light of the ways I've gotten too close to the sin line in the past, in light of the ways I've messed up my life in the past, in light of the consequences that I'm living now because of stupid things in the past, What's the wise thing to do now? In light of that. And in light of my present circumstances, in light of where I find myself today, in light of my heart and how it beats or doesn't beat for Jesus, in light of what I am dealing with now, what is the wise thing to do? And then in light of my future hopes and dreams, in light of what I so want to be true of me, in light of what I so want to be true of my world and the people in it and the relationships in it and my financial situation, in light of what I want to be true of my kids, in light of what I want to be true of my marriage, in light of what I want to be true of my work and my commitment to that, in light of what I want to be true of my morality and my ethics, in light of what I want to be true of me when I get to the end of my life, what is the wise thing to do now? Those are the questions that serve us well when we're dealing with gray issues. Gray issues are not benign issues. Gray issues, if taken to an extreme, will lead to sin or not. And so we need the wisdom of God to figure that out. When we fail to do the wise thing, even if it's not explicitly the wrong thing, we eventually will begin to unravel and self-destruct internally. It won't happen fast, and it may not even be visible for a while. But it will happen. Why? Because when we think that we can toy with areas of sin or with questionable areas or just with unwise, unhealthy things, when we think we can toy with that, then we are basically running from God in that area. And when we run from God, we turn our back on the ultimate source of wisdom and truth. We begin to make the most unwise, misinformed, foolish, rash, irresponsible, reckless, potentially destructive, life-altering, regretful decisions, and we don't even realize it because it's a gray area. We don't mean to. It's not intentional. Oftentimes we actually think we're doing the right thing. We think we're making the right decisions. We actually think we're, we're going in a good direction. But eventually those decisions come back to haunt us. Eventually those decisions begin to unravel and unwind. And you, you see this. I see this a lot because of the nature of what I do. You see someone who has run from God in an area. Not their whole life. They haven't thumbed their nose at God and said, get out of my life, I hate you, you're stupid. They've simply said, God, I love you. I worship you. They sing songs on Sunday morning. They give, they serve, they love. They, they're figuring out this whole Christianity thing. But there's one area, it's a gray area, there's one area, God, that I would really like for you to butt out of my life in, please. I know best about this one area. You butt out. And I see this 
time after time in my life and in the lives of many of us, when you talk to someone who has run from God, and we all have, and then by God's grace they're able to find their way back to God in that area, they don't pick back up where they left off. Now they have financial problems, and they have relationship problems, and they have kid problems, and they have marriage problems, and they have emotional problems, and they have tons of regret, all that started with an unwise gray area choice. And their problems are the direct consequence of decisions that they've made. Story's always the same. They come back, they've stopped running, God has somehow gotten their attention, and I hear the same thing dozens and dozens of times, and I've said the same thing dozens and dozens of times about myself. God, how could, how could I have been so stupid? How could I have made the decisions and choices I made? Everyone around you sees them. They see you making unwise, unhealthy choices. But when we're choosing to run from God in an area, in a gray area, thinking we can handle it, we don't see it. When we turn our back on the ultimate source of wisdom and truth, we will make unwise, misinformed, destructive decisions, and eventually, they will come back to harm us. And you can run, and you can produce, and you can love, and you can marry, and you can do business deals, and you can have lots of fun, and you can pursue the American dream, and you can do all the things that make you feel good. But at the end of the day, if you have turned your back on God in a single area, you will not become who he wants you to become. I will not become who he wants me to become. With God, it is all or nothing. You are walking toward him or you are walking away from him. I am either living in obedience based on what he has said to me or I'm not. That's why us being related to God is about a relationship. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about loving Him so much and abiding in Him so closely and so wanting what He desires for us that the minute we become aware of an area in which we have butted up to the sin line, the wise follower of Jesus turns around and hightails it back towards their Father. Not because they can't play and work and live right here, but because that's stupid. It won't be long before you do this. It won't be long before I do this. And the minute I do that, the minute you do that, everything changes. Are there black and whites in the Bible? 6,468 of them. Are there gray areas? A whole lot less. But yeah, there are. And for the gray areas, God says to you and me, do the wise thing. He's given us some choice. He's given us a free will. But he's also given us incredible direction. He's also given us incredible principles. He's also given us incredible glimpses into the end of the story if we go down path A versus path B. And oftentimes, we're just not familiar enough with this. And so we rely on our own understanding and our own wisdom 
thinking we're okay, thinking everything's going good. We deceive ourselves. We're all masters at this. Our culture tells us not to do the wise thing. Our culture says do the thing that makes you feel good. Our culture says do the thing that you think you should do. Our culture says do the thing that you want to do. Our culture says pursue, pursue your dreams. Pursue those feelings. Pursue those emotions. Pursue those relationships. Pursue those partnerships. Pursue, pursue. That's what our culture says. God says, no. Ask yourself, is this wise? Is this healthy? Is this going to move you closer to your Heavenly Father, or is this going to move you away? There's a verse in Proverbs that is um, almost haunting. Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There is a way which seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. That's not necessarily just black and white issues there. There are 